0: You don't know me, and so it's a good topic to start with, Jesus, because that's the one thing that we're all sort of on the same page with. Anytime I preach, it doesn't matter the topic. What we want is we want Jesus to get bigger. We want the cross to work better. We want the resurrection to be central. That's what we want Jesus to get bigger. My goal is when you walk out here tonight is that Jesus was bigger for you when you walk out than when you walked in. That's what we want. We want Jesus to get bigger. And the, the, the issue with Jesus is, is Jesus is so multidimensional. Oftentimes what happens is only one side of Jesus gets all the play. Play time and so around this time of year we talk about little baby Jesus and we talk you know that Jesus our Savior so a lot of times that gets all the playtime now is Jesus our Savior y- yes he is and we fully embrace that we like it. we sometimes we talk about Jesus our Redeemer and we talk about that in terms of being set free from slavery and this kind of thing and we say yes and amen to all that sometimes we talk about Jesus our Lord like Jesus or, or we say Jesus our Lord and Savior every now and then you might hear a message on Jesus being King. And so, but what, what I want to do is I want to talk to you tonight. Is I want to talk to you about another side of Jesus um, that doesn't in any way diminish the first four I just mentioned. You, you just can't cover everything in one night when it comes to Jesus. But it's a side of Jesus that doesn't get a whole lot of playtime, and, and I want to talk to you about. It. I want to talk to you about uh, Jesus, our Rabbi. And I want to talk to you about what it meant to be a disciple of a rabbi in the first century. I want to talk to you not just about... My question tonight is not, are you saved so much as it is, is Jesus in charge of how you're living your life? If you are going to build a relevant church right here in Irving, Texas, we cannot simply present Jesus as a ticket to heaven instead of hell. We have to present Jesus as the answer to a way of living. And I want to open this up and I want to talk to you about Jesus and my hope is is in the next four minutes, you'll fall in love with Jesus even more than you ever have before. This is Matthew chapter four, if you guys could bring that up. This is uh, the calling of the first four disciples. And here's what it says. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. And they were casting a net into the lake for they were fishermen. If you're a note taker, the for they were fishermen part is pretty important. We'll come back to that in a second. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I'll send you out to fish for people. And at once they left their nets and followed him. That is a strange response. We'll talk about that in a second. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. And they're in a boat with their father, Zebedee, preparing their nets. And Jesus called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. That makes no sense. What would possess grown people to leave everything they know? to follow a guy whose sales pitch is literally this compelling, follow me. Okay. You're talking about grown men leaving wives, families, children, jobs, communities, and boats to follow a guy. Now that's pretty serious. Like if you're here tonight and you're married, how'd that conversation go? (laughs) Hey honey, how was your day? It's all right. What'd you get up to? I quit my job. You did what? This is first century Palestine. We're sort of slaves to Rome. How are we going to make a living? Why would you quit your job? I don't know. This hippie-looking guy came by, told me to follow him. I thought it was a good idea, so I quit my job. Follow him. Where are you going to go? He didn't say. When are you coming back? He didn't say that either. I'm just going to go with him. How would that possibly go? And you're talking about grown men leaving everything. And Jesus doesn't just find two lonely fishermen having a bad fishing year. He goes four for four. Then he goes five for five, and if you know the story, he ends up going 12 for 12, and then he has to start turning people away at the door. What on earth would compel grown people to leave everything, wives, children, jobs, families, communities, and boats, to follow a guy on a sales pitch that is literally this compelling? Follow me. And he does it very, very well. It happens again. This is Mark chapter 2. This is the calling of the fifth disciple. So just so you're following me, first four disciples were fishermen. Fifth disciple was a tax collector. Let me read you his account. This is Mark chapter 2. It says this, Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him. And he began to teach them. And as he walked along, he saw Levi, the son of Alphas, sitting at a tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up, and followed him. There's five for five. Six for six, seven, 12 for 12. Grown people leaving everything they know to follow God. You might be thinking, yeah, but Shane, he was God in flesh. They didn't know that. They didn't figure that out. Too. And then when they figured out he was claiming that, most people left him. You don't gain credibility by coming out of the wilderness and saying, by the way, I'm God in flesh. People do not believe you when you do that. There must have been something else going on. And when I learned this, I couldn't believe how much it affected my life. And if it affected me greatly, maybe it will you. I want to take you on a journey tonight about what it meant to be a disciple of a rabbi in the first century. See, to understand this story, you have to understand that in that culture, every Hebrew boy longed to be a rabbi. It was the highest honor to be someone entrusted with teaching Scripture. But at the end of the day, only the best of 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 the best made it. It's sort of like this. How many boys in Dallas, Texas dream of playing for the Cowboys? All of them. How many of them are going to play for the Cowboys? None of them. That's how it works. Why? Because it doesn't matter how good you are at high school, college, everybody's that good. Everybody's better than you. And at some point, it doesn't matter how good you are at football or basketball or hockey or whatever your sport was. It doesn't, baseball, it doesn't matter. At some point, 99% of all boys are told, I'm sorry, you do not have what it takes to play at the next level. You're going to have to go earn a living somewhere else. But the best of 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 the best somehow make it, which is why every 40-year-old man in the room has a back-in-the-day story. Right, and back, in, and back in the day I was pretty Man I'd have made it You know what I'd have, I'd have made it I'd have made it if it wasn't for my knee I did my knee I'd have, I'd have made it No You just weren't that good And everybody knows that It was the same way with being a rabbi In order to be a rabbi You had to be the best of 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 the best, of the best. Same way Let me show you how they cut people In order to be a rabbi in Jesus' day, first, you had to memorize Leviticus by age six. You had to memorize Leviticus before the age of six. Last I checked, you can't read before six. So you had to memorize Leviticus based on your father's memorization of Leviticus and him quoting it to you. Different message, different day. If you memorize Leviticus by age six, you graduated into the first school. Let me show you the name of the first school if you could bring that next slide up. It's called the bet Safar. Now, uh, social scientists tell me that you're gonna forget 96% of everything I say by Wednesday. That is highly depressing because I've worked hard on this. However, they also say that you can remember more if I get you to do some things. So I want you to repeat this with some go Cowboys, Stars, Mavericks, and Rangers gusto, okay? Whatever your team is, I want everybody to say this. Bet Safar. Ready? Go. Bet Safar. That was really good. We'll have some fun. Let's try that again. Ready? Go. Bet Safar. Now, Bet Safar literally translates the school of the book. Think of it as elementary school. It lasted from six to 12, the bet safar, And from six to 12, you had to memorize the entire Torah, Genesis Exodus, um, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. You had to memorize the entire thing. At the end of the bet safar, you had to prove that you had memorized the entire book. They had a certain way of, of doing that. If you had memorized the entire book, it qualified you to take an exam, which leads to this question. If to even qualify to take the exam, you had to memorize the book, what could they possibly be testing you on? Glad you asked. At 12 years old, they would give you a Torah exam, but your Torah exam was not based on knowledge of facts. You had to memorize the book just to take the exam. Your Torah exam was based on your ability to ask questions about the scriptures in order to keep a conversation about God going. The greatness of rabbis was not known for their ability to close the conversation about God. The greatness of rabbis was known for their ability to keep a conversation about God going. Think about your Bible. When Jesus was 12 years old... He was wowing the teachers of the law with his questions. When Jesus was 12 years old, he was wowing the teachers of the law with his questions. Now, if you wowed the teachers of the law with your questions, you graduated to the next school. But if you did not... You were told, I'm sorry, you're disqualified from ministry. Go back and earn a living at your family trade. But the best of 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 the best graduated to the next school. Now, the next school was called the Bet Talmud. With that same amount of gusto, let's say that together. Ready? Go. Bet Talmud. Let's try that again. Go. Bet Talmud. Bet Talmud literally translates the school of disciple or discipleship school. A, Tal- a Talmudim is a bunch of disciples. A Talmud is a disciple. So essentially, discipleship school. Uh, the Bet Talmud um, lasted from 12 to 30. It was 18 years long. 12 to 30, where you would sit under the tutelage of another rabbi and be taught scriptures, and it had five stages. For the sake of time and relevance, we'll call those stages stage one, two, three, four, five. The idea was if you graduate from stage one, you get to go to stage two. Goodness, this is great, right? If you go to stage two to three, three to four, four, two, five. Once, you get to stage five every person is now a rabbi this process lasted from 12 to 30. have you ever wondered why jesus disappeared from 12 to 30 and then at 30 years old he comes out of the wilderness and everyone's going rabbi 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 where was he he was in the bet Talmud. now you might be thinking let me handle one objection you might be thinking but shane the bible says he wasn't learned no it does not the Bible does not say Jesus wasn't learned. The Bible says there was a group of people who accused him of being unlearned, but those same group of people also accused him of being full of Beelzebub and out of his mind. I don't think he was either of those either, right? Right? Listen, they didn't just let any redneck stand in the temple and preach from the scriptures, right? They didn't just let any redneck do that, right? You had to have some sort of credential. Jesus shows up anywhere in, anywhere in Israel. Jesus shows up at a synagogue, and what do they do? Rabbi, read us the scriptures. Why? Somebody asked me one time, Shane, what evidence do you have Jesus was a rabbi? Mm. My evidence that Jesus was a rabbi was they called him rabbi, right? <laughs> right? And this is how they did that. Now, When you get to the end of the Bet Talmud, stage five. Stage five is the most important stage. Everybody is a rabbi. It's not a question of if you're a rabbi or not. It's a question of what kind of rabbi will you be. There were two types of rabbis. There were rabbis with authority and rabbis without authority. Authority. 99.9% of all rabbis were rabbis without authority. But the best of 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 the best. About one every two or three generations, a rabbi would come along so special that they would endue him with a special title, a rabbi with authority. Now, a rabbi without authority was a rabbi just the same. Here was the main difference. If you were a rabbi without authority, you had to teach the scripture the same way your rabbi taught you. A rabbi's way of teaching scripture, the way he interpreted it, was called his yoke. And so a rabbi's way of teaching scripture, way of living, what he bound, what he loosed, what he allowed, what he forbid that was called a yoke. And if you did not have authority, you had to teach the scripture the same way your rabbi taught you so that you would pass his yoke down to the next place, then to the next, then to the next, then to the next. But if you were endued with a special ordination, a rabbi with authority. It meant you could make up your own yoke. You could make up your own way of doing things. Now let me show you the word. This is the word for rabbinical authority. Hit that next one. This word is very important. It is called Samika. This is the word that we need to learn the most. So everybody, with that same amount of gusto, I want everybody to say Samika, right? Let's try that again. Ready, go. Samika. Now, if you want to sound a bit ancient, Middle East. Eastern, right? Here's what we're going to do. We're going to go Samika, and then we're going to go, all right? Because it's not really in this word, but it's a cool sound, all right? So I want everybody to do that. So what we're going to do is we're going to do Samika. Everybody do that. Samika. Right, that's very good. That's very good. Let's try that again, all right? So in, in first century, there were rabbis without authority, but then every now and then, there were rabbis with Samika. So you were either a rabbi without authority, or you were a rabbi with Samika, now, when I do that, you got to do it a little better than that. Ready? Samika. Right. Now, here's how they determined who had authority and who didn't. When you graduated from rabbi school, they baptized you. A baptism was your graduation. Think about your Bible. When Jesus was 30 years old, he went out to the desert to be baptized right now here's how they determined who had samika and who didn't at your baptism you had to have two verbal witnesses to your authority think about jesus's baptism when jesus was 30 years old he went out to the desert to be baptized and john says behold the lamb of god who takes away the sins of the whole world whose sandals i'm not worthy to untie witness one. John baptizes Jesus, and Jesus comes up out of the water as just a regular old normal rabbi until a second voice speaks. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And there was thunder and lightning and birds and rainbows. In other words, God the Father essentially says, if no one else is going to speak up, I will. And Jesus left the water that day, not just as a rabbi, but as a rabbi with some meekah. Which means he can make up his own yoke. And Jesus spent the rest of his life wrecking everybody else's yoke. <laughs> Think about your Bible. You do not teach as the other rabbis teach, but you teach as one with authority. It didn't mean he was yelling. It meant we didn't hear. We've never heard this before. And if we've never heard it before, you got to have authority. Hey, take my yoke upon you, and learn of me, for my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Hey, have you, the key to that phrase is, is my. For him to say my yoke, he had to have samika. <laughs> Jesus' first sermon ever was called the Sermon on the? Wow. Why? Because it was so well attended, he had to climb a mountain to get away from the people to talk. Listen, I've been speaking for years and you're a right nice looking group of people, but I hardly have to climb a mountain to get away from you. This guy comes out of the desert Everybody's going rabbi. He puts on his first meeting and thousands of people are showing up with no modern transportation. Why would they do that? Well, if a new rabbi showed up with Samika and rumor had it that his yoke was easy and his burden was light, people would have showed up from everywhere to hear about a new way to live. The first thing a new rabbi would do is he had to go get disciples because a rabbi without disciples is a monk. He's just sitting around thinking about stuff. You got to be mentoring people. And so think about it. I want you to think about it. Where would the new rabbi go get disciples from? He would go to the Bet Talmud. And what would he find there? He would find pre-vetted 12-year-old boys who had memorized the scripture and proved they were intelligent. He didn't have to ask all kinds of questions like that. He would go back there and find pre-vetted 12-year-old boys. And when the rabbi would walk through the Bet mid, the rabbi only had to ask one question, and that is this. Do I believe that they can do greater things than me? And if the rabbi believed they could do greater things than him, he would ordain them into his rabbi school with two words. Follow me, follow me, follow me, follow me, follow me follow me. Every Hebrew boy longed to hear the words of a rabbi say, follow me. But most of them only ever heard you're disqualified from ministry. Fast forward, this new rabbi with Samika. He doesn't go to the Bet Talmud to find his disciples. Where does he go? He goes to the bank of a lake. Wait a minute. If he goes to the bank of a lake and he finds some fishermen, right? What does that mean? It means they've been disqualified. And Jesus shows up at the banks of a lake, finds some disqualified folks, and what does he do, right? Right? He says, hey, Simon, Andrew, follow me. And they're jumping out of boats for the opportunity. Why? Because people had told them they were disqualified. But the yoke of our rabbi qualifies disqualified people. That is the yoke of our rabbi. (laughs) And aren't you glad? Somebody would have disqualified me, for sure. Somebody would disqualify you. Four for four. Four for four. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Hold, on, hold on, hold on. First four disciples were fishermen. Fifth disciple was a tax collector. Wait a minute, where'd he find him? He found him at a booth. Where? At the lake. Hang on. If you're the tax collector at the lake, who have you been taxing? In other words, we're going to find out right now. Can you four forgive the one who's been robbing from you for years and let's go change the world together? That is the yoke of our rabbi. Once a rabbi found his 12 disciples, first thing you do, teach them how to walk. They, one historian said that you could always tell which disciple belonged to which rabbi because they wanted to walk exactly like him. They wanted to follow exactly, which makes me wonder if there was like a first century rabbi with a limp or something. I, I don't know. So they, like you would always, know, And so he would teach them to walk behind them and oh by the way um you guys aren't bored are you everybody's good okay good all right so you could always tell who the best student of the day was because the best student of the day got to be the line leader (laughs) just like now And the rabbis wore these special shoes, right? They would just throw up dirt. And you could always tell who the best dude of the day was because they were following the closest behind the rabbi. And they were the one, when they got back to temple, they were the one that would be covered in in dust from from their waist down, right? So they'd be covered in the dust of their rabbi from their waist down. But this was not not dust you wanted to wash off. This was dust you wanted to show off because it was an honor to be covered in the dust of your rabbi because it meant you were walking the closest behind him. So you'd go back to temple and you'd be like, hey. <laughs> Check out my dust, right? Right. Hey, mem- remember what Jesus said? He said, if you ever go to a place and they don't accept you, simply shake the dust off. Yeah, that's not a curse. How does a guy? How does a guy tell him to tell people to bless their enemies, but shake the dust off your feet? If, but now shaking the dust off your feet is, in other words, if you go to a place and they don't accept you, um, still give them the greatest blessing you could give them because it was an honor to be covered in the dust of your rabbi? Which leads me to this question. You'll either be covered in the dust of your rabbi or you'll be covered in the dust of your own issues. What is it for you? You'll either be covered in the dust of your rabbi or you'll be covered in the dust of your dad, your mom, why do you act that way? Well you should know my dad. Yes, but you're 40. <laughs> you'll either be covered in the dust of your rabbi or you'll be covered in the dust of your mom, your dad, your denomination. Or my personal favorite, the way I was always taught. As if that's going to stand the test of time. We are not called to be covered in those things. We're called to be covered in the dust of our rabbi. And, by the way, unless you've been given special samika <laughs> Unless you've been given special samika, and you haven't, you have to teach the yoke of your rabbi. You don't have the authority to create your own yoke. If we are disciples of the rabbi, it doesn't mean simply that we get to go to heaven when we die. That's a beautiful part of it. Resurrection is a beautiful part of it. I'm simply talking about as you're living here today, what gives you the right to change his yoke? You can't change his yoke and then wonder why people don't buy what we're selling. Which leads to this. Is there any place you've changed the yoke of your rabbi? I love the yoke of our rabbi. I love Jesus. There's this one time. <laughs> there was this lady, and she was caught in the act of adultery. Like in the act. In the act. Now, that's not a great spectator sport, even when you know, it's appropriate. But to be caught in the act of adultery is really, really bad. Now, you guys know your Bible, right? What does the Bible clearly say must be done to her? She must be? Right. So they bring her to Jesus. Why? Think about it. Why do they bring her to Jesus? They need someone with authority, right? They need someone with authority. And so they throw her at Jesus's feet and they say, Jesus, the scriptures say to stoner, what's your yoke say? Now, Jesus is in a conundrum, isn't he? Does Jesus want to stone the lady? No way. Is he supposed to fulfill scripture? Yes, he is. Man. So what does Jesus do? Jesus says, okay, yep, you're right. The scriptures say stone her." So I say stoner. There, I've kept scripture. But wait a minute, I have samika, which means I can make up my own yoke. Hold on, the scriptures say stoner, so my yoke says stoner. But my yoke also says you can't throw stones unless you're perfect. (laughs) 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 And everyone gets tired of holding their stones. Says they all go away. And then Jesus looks at her and says... Woman, where are your accusers? I love that question. Not what did you do, not tell me about it, no. Lady, where are your accusers? She says, they're not here. He says, great, then neither do I condemn you. Why, why? The Torah says you have to stone someone caught in the act of adultery, but the Torah also says you have to have two witnesses to condemn someone. Jesus couldn't make her sin go away, so he simply made the witnesses go away, which automatically declares a mistrial. That is the yoke of our rabbi. Which is why there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. It's not that you don't sin. It's just there'll never be enough witnesses to condemn you by the law of God. That is the yoke of our rabbi. See, Jesus was going after something deeper. Jesus was going after... His, his challenge was don't be people who simply want to be right about Scripture. Be people who fulfill Scripture. That is two different things. To be right about Scripture, get your stone out. But to fulfill scripture is a whole lot easier. And that is simply this. Simply do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And in so doing, you will fulfill scripture. We want to be people who aren't simply right about the Bible. We want to be people who fulfill scripture by treating other people the way we would want to be treated. That is the yoke of our rabbi. There's this one time. Uh, Well, that actually leads me to a question. The yoke of our rabbi looked at someone caught in the act of adultery and he didn't condemn her. Could your yoke do that? You know, the the church I grew up in, you got caught in adultery there, they'd announce it from the stage so that all would fear. That's not the yoke of our rabbi. That's the yoke of some jacked up white dude from 1880 who had severe daddy issues. (laughs) That no, no no no. Where have we had the authority to change his yoke? We don't. The yoke of our rabbis, the hope for the world. Let's not change it, and then still call it. If you're going to change it, at least call it what it is. This is not Christianity. This is something else that we've made up to control people with their spiritual guilt. Let's call this what it is. We are Christians whose only authority is in the yoke of our rabbi. (laughs) There's this one time. It says that Jesus went by a prostitute's house, which leads to all kinds of questions like, is Jesus allowed to do that? (laughs) Because what's going on in a prostitute's house in the first century? Like prostitution. Like Jesus is between customers, which which leads to this. (laughs) Which leads to this question: Would there be a worse place ever to run into Jesus? <laughs> right? You imagine that? You come out of the back room, you're like <whistles> "Oh Jesus! Hey, man!" <laughs> I was just here to use the toilet. And it says that, it says that the prostitute was so moved by the compassion of Jesus. That she knelt down and washed his feet with her hair. Remember? Remember what Jesus says? That's it. All your sins are now forgiven. Is Jesus allowed? By the way, when I ask that, the answer is always yes. Can you get saved by washing his feet with your hair? No temple visit, no sacrifice, no sinner's prayer, no altar call. No Romans 10, 9, and 10. I know it surprises some people that anyone got saved before the book of Romans was written, but they did. (laughs) Like, think about it. In the first century, what's the only way for that lady to be saved? Temple ritual. Who's not allowed in the temple? Prostitutes. So Jesus circumvents the entire oppressive system, and he calls her forgiven because she washes his feet with her hair. (laughs) And aren't you glad that's not the rule? Like, sir. Can you imagine meeting her one day and her going, how did you meet the risen Christ? And you're like, wow, I came to Embassy City Church. The Holy Spirit moved my heart. And I came forward and I prayed a prayer. And asked Jesus in my heart. Be my personal Lord and Savior. Changed my life. Best day of my life. How would you feel if she went, what? You didn't wash his feet with your hair? Oh, no, I'm in. You're out. I'm right. You're wrong. Like, with all due respect to you, sir, for you to wash his feet with your hair it would be a three-man job. You'd be turned upside down and used like a buffer. <laughs> There's this one time. Jesus speaking, and um, this is very chaotic. He's, it says that there was a paralyzed guy who couldn't get in, and so his friends took him to the roof. Remember the story? And they cut a hole in the roof and lower him down. That's chaotic. I don't care how good of a speaker you are. If someone repels from the roof, it's over. <laughs> like, remember the story? What happens? It says, and Jesus saw the faith of his friends and proclaimed his sins forgiven. Wow. Wow. Yes. Is Jesus allowed? Yes. <laughs> Can you get saved like that? Yes. Can you get saved because someone else is believing for you? <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> you say, Shane, how far do you take that? I don't know. That's all above my pay grade. I just know it's in there. I don't know how far to take it. But I do know this. If you're here tonight and you're a mom and you're believing for your unbelieving children, you keep doing that. Jesus sees that stuff. <laughs> yeah. A later writer said it this way. Don't you know it's the faith of a saved wife that can save her unbelieving husband? Yeah, <laughs> Somebody asked me one time, they said, what are you saying, Shane, what are you saying? You're saying you can go to heaven by marrying the right woman? Okay, first, if that's your question, you have missed my point entirely. That's first. Um, uh, a Second, can you go to heaven by marrying the right woman? I have no idea. I do know if you marry the wrong one, you will live in hell today. That is a fact. <laughs> you, yeah, you'd be praying for a comet to come to earth to give you sweet relief. <laughs> In the first century, what was the only way for that man to be saved? Temple ritual. Who's not allowed in the temple? Paralyzed people. Jesus circumvents the whole thing. You know, the yoke of our rabbi existed in the Old Testament too. You know, Hebrews 11, by faith Abraham, by faith Moses, by faith David, by faith Solomon. You go back and read their stories. They were all jacked up beyond all recognition. They were all messed up. All of them would be disqualified. By faith, Abraham gave his wife to Pharaoh's harem. If CNN and the internet would have been around back then, what would we be saying about Abraham? If Abraham was available to preach here next Sunday, Saturday, it's next Saturday at five. It's a combined service with Heartland. <laughs> if Abraham was available to preach here next Saturday, would you welcome him? Or would we talk about his past? By faith, Moses. Moses was a premeditated murderer. I looked this way and that and seeing no one, I killed the man and hit him in the sand. Problem was the next day the sand shifted. You got his legs sticking him out of the sand. God said, you'll do. I'll have you write the foundation of all of scripture. By faith, Samson. Samson was sleeping with prostitutes on his wedding night because he got depressed because his best man stole his wife. By faith, David. David had 700 women. 700 women, man. Why? 700. (laughs) And he still went and got the one he wasn't supposed to have? And you know, there are some Christian denominations that according to their bylaws and writing would never have David preach from their pulpits. Yet they'll open a book he wrote, call it the word of God, and fail to see the hypocrisy in that? Don't hold people's failures against them too long. Come on. By faith, Solomon. Solomon had a thousand. Al did his dad by three. A thousand women. A thousand. God said, I'll have you write the book on wisdom. (laughs) Can you imagine that conversation? Excuse me, sir. Are you the man that successfully navigated the affections of a thousand different women? Yes, I am. You've got to be the smartest man alive. We're going to write a book. If Solomon was available next weekend, is he welcome? It's the yoke of our rabbi. <laughs> you know, the yoke of our rabbi, what I find when I look at Jesus is that Jesus was very hard on the things we don't care about. And he's very gracious on the things we major on. It's true in the Old Testament as well. In Ezekiel chapter 14, it says, for the sins of Sodom, I destroyed Sodom. For the sins of Sodom. What would you think the sins of Sodom would be? Sodomy. Like, we named it after the place. Look, when your name becomes a verb, that's a bad day, right? Like, if you walk out of here and go, man, he Shane Willarded me. I don't even know what that means. That's bad, right? For the sins of Sodom, I destroyed Sodom. And her sins were... Pride, apathy, laziness, gluttony, and overlooking the poor. Gluttony. By the way, strictly forbidden in Scripture, twenty-five times more than homosexuality. But we like to focus on one and not. Come on now. Come on. Come on. It's easy to preach. It's easy for you to say. Yeah, keep going. Oh, I'm going to stop right there on that one. <laughs> it's Christmas time. We all eaten. Tell you what, I love Jesus. Amen. If you're not in love with Jesus, I hope today is spurring you onto that. I want to tell you one more story from the Bible, and then one more story from my personal life. The reason is, is because I could talk about Jesus all night, but then you'll get hungry and you'll turn on me, and <laughs> we don't want that. And, and and I'd much rather leave you wanting more than less. And we can always come back and talk about Jesus some more. Um, there's this one time. And it says this. It says, Jesus took his disciples to Caesarea Philippi. And Jesus took his disciples to Caesarea Philippi. Now, it reads over like, oh, whatever. Like, oh, Jesus took his disciples to Dallas-Fort Worth Airport. No, 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 no. Caesarea Philippi is an hour and a half drive from Galilee on proper roads and cars today. This was not something you just hopped over and walked to. This was A massive journey. And Caesarea Philippi was the place no Christian was supposed to go. The reason is, is because Caesarea Philippi today is not called Caesarea Philippi. It's called Paniah, the city of Pan. Caesarea Philippi in Jesus' day was the headquarters of the worship of a goat god named Pan. And you would never, ever go there because Pan was debaucherous. Whatever the worst thing going on is tonight in Dallas, Texas, is Nickelodeon compared to that. Unbelievable stuff. Let, let me show you a picture of the middle of Caesarea Philippi. Let me show it to you. Here it comes here. This is is a picture of the middle. I took that, listen, I took that picture myself standing in Caesarea Philippi, which is why it's so professional. I didn't even bother not to notice the guy's arm in the bottom left. But nonetheless, I'm not a professional photographer. I'm a professional teacher. There we go. This, I'm standing in the middle of Caesarea Philippi. Now, what you're looking at there, see the big cave? That cave was called the entrance and exit to hell. To the right of that cave is the ruins of the temple to the goat god Pan. This is about a 250 foot high rock face mountain. And Pan had his temple right there, and then there was a grotto in front. And here was the problem Pan received worship through intimate acts with goats. So here's what would happen. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, people were being intimate with goats on the public street right there. And it wasn't because they liked goats. It was because they were taught if they didn't worship Pan properly, he would get mad. And if Pan got mad, he would open up that cave and he would swallow you into hell. Can you imagine the open aired sexual immorality debauchery that would have been going on right there in that public street? Jesus took his youth group there. <laughs> all this nonsense going on. And remember what happens? What happens? He has to focus them. Remember? They're all, all the ways. Remember what he says? He says, hey, Peter, hey, hey, Peter, right here, bro, right here. Who do you say that I am? Peter shakes it off. He says, wow. He says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, That's right. And upon this rock we'll build a church and not even the gates of hell will prevail against it. In other words, Jesus went into that center of debauchery and he didn't tell them to stop. He didn't say, I'm gonna judge you for this. The reason they were doing it was because they were scared of judgment. He goes into that cesspool of debauchery and he stands over the gates of hell and he says, bring it on. You're acting like that because you're scared of this? This has no power, That." Is the yoke of our rabbi. Wow. The yoke of our rabbi was always setting the oppressed free. I used to kickbox. I got really good at it. I was a very competitive fighter. Um, I'm not interested in fighting now. Hurts too bad to get hit. I'm forty. It just hurts. Um, And fighting now is different. When I fought, you had to stand up and you had to fight. If you clenched, a referee broke you. Now they take you to the ground and pull your arm off. It's just different. But back when I fought, I was was pretty good. I fought in the US Open two years in a row. I got invited to the NASCA World Championships. I could handle myself pretty good. and so, you know, when you go to these things, you get these trophies. And so, my mother, who was quite proud of me, she uh, she had this shrine room in our house that had all my trophies and stuff in it. So, I got back from the U.S. Open one time, and all my friends from the neighborhood were coming over and looking at the trophies and this and that and the other. Well, there was this one guy in our neighborhood. His name was Kenneth Brown. Now, Kenneth Brown, I am six foot two. I am 187 pounds today. Kenneth Brown was six foot two, 205 pounds in the eighth grade, right? He was one of these freaks of nature who was like shaving in the fourth grade. You know what I'm talking about? You know that one kid, it's like, we're going to recess, where are you going? I'm going to shave, man, right? It's like, it was like weird, and either, either he just developed early or he failed school six years in a row or something, but he was huge, I mean, huge, huge, and he shows up and he says, "Shay Willard, I think I can whoop you. I said, I think you're right. He said, no, I'm serious. I want to fight. I said, no, I'm serious. I ain't fighting. He said, why? I said, you're twice my size, buddy. I, you, you, rule number one, don't fight people twice your size. He said, I went and bought boxing gloves to prove I could whoop you. And I went, whoa, 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 whoa. You mean a boxing match? No, you, oh, not a fight where you can grab me and take me to the ground. And you, No, you mean stand up and box. So if we clinch, someone, oh, we can do that. No, no, that I thought you said a fight. No, you meant box. Okay, we could do that. So we went out in the yard, and the friends made a ring. You can picture this, right? Fight, 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 right, right? And so I got in the ring with Kenneth, and I beat him half to death. Hey? I was fast. He was slow. I was skilled. He was not. I was just, I couldn't hurt him. He's twice my size. I was just in and out, in and out, pop, 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 pop. Anyway, I started frustrating Kenneth. Kenneth decided, I'm going to end this fight with one punch, And y'all, he threw a right cross, and it was a right cross unlike any right cross I'd ever seen in my life. Let me show you how fast it came in real speed. Here it was. Ready? I actually had time to think. When he finished throwing the punch, he left himself in this position. And I thought, I'll end this now. And never before nor since have I ever hit a human being this hard. It was a perfect shot. All my weight was on my back legs. Big muscles leading small muscles. Everything grounded. Everything moving in tandem. It wasn't one of these, you know. It was everything moving. I hit him, if, you, if you've ever done fighting, you understand what I mean. I hit him from the ground up. Like, I'm talking everything was moving at the right place at the right time. Right on the base of his chin. Bam! His head snapped back, his knees buckled like this. I just stood over him, like just sort of like that and waited for him to fall. In retrospect, I should have kept hitting him. <laughs> but I never hit anybody that hard, so I'm just sort of like, like this. He took about four steps back, he caught his balance, and now he was mad. <laughs> His face turned red and he looked up at me and he said, boy, is that all you got? And it was. I'd hit him with everything I had and he kept coming. How many of you know when you hit somebody with everything you got and they still come, you're, you're, you lose? I forfeited. You know what Colossians says? Well, Paul said it in the book of Colossians. He said the yoke of our rabbi was put on public display. Oh, bless your enemies. Oh, really? Forgive everybody? Oh, blessed are the merciful? Oh, let's see if you can live by that with 39 lashes, huh? How about that? How about some mocking? How about some scourging? How about some spitting? How about a fake trial where you're falsely accused of stuff, huh? Can you still forgive them? Can you still bless your enemies then? How about, how about walking across up a, up a hill? How about that? How about nails in your hands and your feet? Come on, come on, come on, come on. Come on, how about a crown of thorns? Come on, break it. You said, you said you would forgive me no matter what. You said, bless your enemies. You said, pray for those who despitefully use you. Come on, man, get us. Send some angels, destroy us. Come on, break your yoke. Because if you break your yoke, you'll have no moral authority. Come on, come on. And they beat him 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 and they beat him. And they beat him and they beat him and they beat him and they beat him. And you know what he kept doing? He kept loving and forgiving and loving and forgiving and loving and forgiving and loving and forgiving and loving and forgiving. Any yoke that says Jesus is going to destroy somebody, that is not the yoke of our rabbi. That's the yoke of something else. I don't care if it's a 25-foot cross over the top of the building. If Jesus was going to destroy people, he would have destroyed them that is the yoke of our rabbi and they beat him 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 until they killed him you can't do more to a guy than killing and he died and peter tells us later what happened says that when jesus died he descended into hell and he preached to the dead so they beat him and they beat him and jesus dies and he shows up in hell and I think he looked at Satan right in the eye and he said, boy, is that all you got? <laughs> that was it. That, that, that right there. You thought you could destroy my yoke by killing me? No way. Because here's what's going to happen. Three days from now, I'm going to walk up out of here. And the whole three days I'm here, I'm going to preach to everybody here. I wonder how his altar call went. Mm -mm -mm -mm. You know, the Bible says that when Jesus rose from the dead, tombs everywhere emptied. I wonder where they came from. That is the yoke of our rabbi. The yoke of our rabbi is love saves the day. You know what happened? Jesus come up out of hell. Three days later, you know what he did? He cooked breakfast on the beach for the very person who denied him in public court. And you know what? You go back and read it. He doesn't bring his son up. He just says, Peter, do you love me? Because if you still love me after all this, let's go change the world. That is the yoke of our rabbi. I hope that Jesus is a bit bigger for you now hope that you're in love with Jesus more right now than you have ever been in your life. I want to take a second. I want us to be quiet before the Lord. and I want you to bow your head and I want you to ask the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, would you speak to me now? It does us no good to hear something and not change. If you're brave enough, I want you to ask this question inside yourself. I want you to ask, Holy Spirit, give me the courage to see things different and the irresistible urge to respond to what I see. Why don't you just ask this question? Lord Jesus, where have I changed your yoke? Would you please forgive me for where I've changed your yoke? I had no right. Second question, Lord, would you speak to my heart right now about someone I can reveal your yoke to? Is there anyone that you need to cook breakfast on the beach for? Is there anyone that's hurt you, denied you, betrayed you? Is there any person who used to call this church home, and now they don't feel comfortable coming back because they made a mistake. Maybe they were caught in the act of adultery. Maybe they were caught in something else. And we need to make a phone call, a text message, an email, something that says, at Embassy City Church, we don't hold your failures against you forever. You can come and get a fresh start, a second chance. We want to love you and restore you. Please come back. You're welcome here. Is there any place... We need to reach out to the marginalized, the, the prostitute, the broken person, the paralyzed person, the, the disqualified. Lord, would you speak to us now? Maybe you're here tonight and you've never given your heart to Jesus. And you can feel the story in you. If, if you want to do that, you need something to say, you can say something like this, Lord Jesus, I have no hope of saving myself, I'm choosing tonight to put my faith and my trust in your version of my life story instead of the one I've written for myself. I'm choosing your version of my life, and I say yes to the infinite possibilities that that brings. Lord, move us and change us. I pray for this church. I pray for Embassy City Church that it would be an incredible, vibrant, dynamic, growing church in this community that we would present Jesus not as simply a ticket to heaven, but as a way of living. May we not just be saved, but may we be disciples.